I mean, the literal translation is the mangled one. Uncovering some of the most amazing stories from some of the most talented innovators and creatives in marketing tech and digital. This is the Wonderful People Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Wonderful People Podcast with Batman Phil Jones and Robin Dan Mordub. How are you today, Mr. Jones? Um, very good, Dan. Are we are we doing it as Phil and Dan or Dan and Phil this time around? Oh, I don't know. It's just have Batman we got a and Robin. Order? I've got a pecking order. I don't know. It changes every week, doesn't it? It changes every episode. It does. Who, who's it does. the boss? I think Dan and Phil. Oh, look at that. He's been nice yeah. today because it's a Friday. There you go. How's your week been? Um, fantastic. Really nice week, really, considering we're all, we're all still in the same lockdown. We've been in for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, the kids are going back to school on Monday. So I think I should just say well done to all the teachers because watching our own little grandchild Frank the way that he's been working with his teachers remotely uh, it's amazing I think the job they're doing is fantastic so well done all the teachers yeah agreed um, and Frank he actually got the star of the week from his headmistress and a little trophy for reading his story like to the class of five-year-olds oh, and he sweet. read his story it was all about the dog Arlo Arlo the super dog <laughs> <laughs> and he got a little prize and a gold medal, and so we're chuffed to bits about that. Uh, and our guest today has just become a granddad quite recently, so he's going to have to get used to all this stuff quite soon. And last thing, I suppose, is budget week. So yep. I'm just not sure how the budget affected you, but certainly the one thing that has been a bit of a godsend to us is the furlough. Yes. And actually having the ability to be able to, you know, especially with an events business, if you like, Podge. Uh, and Claire's been on furlough now for quite a few months. Her husband's also on furlough. He's a designer. So uh, thank God that they didn't scrap that in a budget. Yeah, I know. Years. It's a tricky time, isn't it, with the budget? I think the government, you know, they, they're going to try and support businesses through it. And we just got to, you know, really hope that as we come out of lockdown, you know, we, we, events like Podge will come back online. The economy will open up again, and yeah, we hope we bounce back. But um, yeah, I think I think the, the government did what they could. It's gonna we're gonna pay for it in the medium term, but let's not worry about that for today. Well, today we've got somebody that I've known for twenty years, and I'd forgotten it was twenty years until we were trying to work out that a little meeting. I'm sure it's either twenty or twenty-one years, but. Um, to introduce him from Liverpool to Baghdad, India to Burma, two horses, three kids, five books, uh, a few of which have been bestsellers, a run in with Pele, and a dodgy Fox's biscuit deal under his belt. Uh, this is merely the tip of the iceberg for today's wonderful guest life story. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Rogan Taylor one of the leading academics in the world of football and fan engagement, a writer, broadcaster, and pioneer of the world's first football degree at Liverpool University, the MBA. He was also the founding member of the first ever national fans organization in the UK, and is a regular advisor to clubs, brands, and governing bodies all over the world. Rogan, lovely to have you with us today. Can't wait to get started and find out more about your amazing life story. Rogan, so we always start with this question for our guests, and uh, we've had all sorts of weird and wonderful answers, but if you were to be stuck in a lift with someone, who would it be and why? Oh, um, it, it would be Wordsworth. Um, you know, I was introduced in my early teens, uh, teens English, English teacher at the Blue Coat School, and... Um, you know, I really did love it. I remember wandering into Sefton Park, um, you know, probably aged about 12 or 13, and, um, you know, muttering sort of um, something far more deeply interfused whose dwelling is the light of the setting suns and the round ocean, feeling of identification with a, the, a glorious natural world, had a tremendous impact on me so um 
uh, he was a genius, you know. He launched the modern age in many ways. Just so I could just stand there and lift and listen to him. <laughs> wow. So, Rogan, you're extremely well-known and respected in the world of football, but what many people will be interested to know is the, the career you're so well-known for started pretty late in your life. Your journey prior to this took many unexpected directions and all equally worthy of a podcast on their own. Can you give us a quick whirlwind tour of your early years? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I, was, I was a late starter um, and, and that was down to a variety of factors. Um, I didn't want a career, thank you very much. I wanted to have adventures like I did when I was a kid. Um, and there was one big life-shaping moment when I was, I think it was 10 or 11, and we decided to hitchhike to South Wales. <laughs> so don't you imagine two kids like that wandering off these days and hitchhiking. And this guy picked us up and drove us to Southport, lovely old car. And he had an aeroplane on the beach, um, which, you know, he made a few bob taking people up and giving them a whiz, a whiz round Blackpool Tower and back. And so <laughs> we arrived at the aeroplane and he said, listen, you two, uh, you know, um, keep an eye on it for me. I'm going to go for a pint and then I'll come out and, you know, start taking up punters. And so we spent an hour guarding the play. And, you know, and it was one of the most adventurous. And eventually he took us up in the play because uh, business was slow. And it was, you know, it was that act of waving your thumb. And an adventure happened. And I think that was, you know, that was a, a huge imprint on where I, you know, ended up. Because, you know, I was, I was, stuck in the army when I was uh, 16 years old and my mom was running off with a soldier, leaving my father and um, they needed somewhere to kind of stick me and I spent most of the time in the guardhouse when I was in the army nearly a year and I'll never forget that moment of work when they finally threw me out. I was 17 years old walking out of this miserable little camp in North Wales called Tom Brunner and I felt this surge of joy as I realised that I was free to do anything I wanted. You know, my ma had run off with the other guy. My dad was on his own in the flat in Liverpool. My brother was in Canada. What do you want to do with him? And so, you know, my my criteria really was um, I want adventures. <laughs> and indeed, that's that's what happened to me. Um, you know, I went to work in Sweden in a hotel, eight, about 17 now, eight, yeah, 17 still. And, um, you know, I had some fun there for a couple of months and then painted a few walls in Denmark for a couple of months. And then thought, I'm going to go to the beaches of Greece. Um, and I was hitchhiking down through old Yugoslavia. And this nerve pulled up. So I stood on the side of the road. Gorgeous vehicle, had a German red on the back. Looked through the window, he wound it down. He didn't look German, but I gave him my German hitchhiking phrase because he said to me, Get in the car. And so I got in the car and off we went. Mine had a wife in Southern Germany. And I spent the next two months driving with her, going to Baghdad because. The opening conversation with McCall was, I said, the first thing I said to him was, where are you going? And he looked at me and he said, me, I'm going to Baghdad. And it was, you know, Baghdad, it was, it was an amazing word. And I looked at him and said, so am I. And he looked at me uh, and in fact, he went over and he pinched my cheek. And he said, you're going to Baghdad? I said, yes. And we immediately became friends. And I can't tell you the full story, we haven't got the time, but there was a moment there which was another of those life-shaping moments, like that lift to South Coast. And that was, we were driving through the deserts of Syria, 
<laughs> I had no idea what I was getting into. And we used to drive at night. And Monon Jabara was his name, Mon. And between 8 o'clock and 10 o'clock, they play her song. And so there we were, windows down in the park. The sky above me, a desert sky, utterly unpolluted in those days. It was whitewashed with stone. And I remember looking up at that sky and going, this is it. This is what I want to do, like, forever. <laughs> and it was that that shaped that instinct to go travelling and to, you know, to discover the world. So I get the feeling, Rogan, that, that that isn't the end of the adventures then. Um, I understand that India was quite an adventure as well. So tell us a little bit more about that. I just fell in love with India. I just, I mean, I fell in love with Afghanistan. I managed to fall in love with Pakistan. I just loved it, especially after travelling all the way across the Shah's Iran which was such a miserable country and a long journey. And coming into India, I just didn't believe how wonderful it was. But we had, I mean, we'd set off with two weeks' pay. I mean, the guy I was travelling with, uh, Jimmy Hudson, uh, Jimmy and I got a job for two weeks in Leeds before we left England. So we picked up a week and a week in hand, which I remember, I think, was about 32 quid. And with that money, off we set off to hitchhike from the Mersey Tunnel onwards, all the way to India. And it was a, you know, a very adventurous journey, as you could imagine. Getting there, we're living at 7,000 feet. When you round a bend in the road, you're suddenly hit with a vision of a thousand miles of snows, 25,000 foot and up stretching from Pakistan to Bangladesh. Absolutely. It was like a punch in the solar plexus every time it hit you. And I just thought, you know, we've got to go and get some money and come back to India. So that we couldn't do anything. We were stuck. We'd been given a place to live by a very kindly lady north of the town of Almada. You know, we were surviving on nothing. So we decided, let's try and make it to Australia, get some money and get back. And the second part of the adventure in India was, you know, going up to um, Tibetan border, buying a couple of mountain ponies. <laughs> Neither of us had ever heard of bloody horse except on the beach. <laughs> um, and, uh, and a dog, a lovely dog called Nita. And heading off down to northwest Bengal, um, and then right the way across Assam, you know, across the Brahmaputra River, nine miles long, the river, the, the bridge. Um, that's how wide the Brahmaputra is there. And uh, the horse, my horse in particular, Stan, Hindu Stan. Um, Stan could see the moving water between the boards of the bridge, and he was very nervous, so we had to get Jimmy's was Mary. Um, in front of him, and with the sight of Mary's mom, he would keep going <laughs> through the very, the very worst of possibilities. Um, and so, you know, that was um, uh, that was the way we we walked with our gear on the back, with the tape recorders this time, the music we take from the records that we we bought in Australia, and. You know, I mean, we'd be sleeping in dry riverbeds under a bridge listening to Miles Davis and John the train. The horses ringing in the field, tied each to a tree. And, I mean, it was just sheer joy. It really was. I mean, it was hard as well. <laughs> it was so beautiful. It stayed with me all my life, and it was... My friend Jimmy Hudson had passed away fairly recently, about 18 months ago. Um, you know, we were able to, to get together long afterwards after we returned home. So, you know. How old How old were you guys when you were doing that? Uh, that was, yeah, I was 23. 
23. It's all part of the, yeah. the story of how you, you, you were late to education, but your education was actually on the move, wasn't it? Travelling around the world. I mean, can you get a better education than that? I don't think you can, really. No, it's very yeah. nice to be able to focus after doing something like that, to say, I'm really interested in this. Yeah. When I was that age, 23, I was doing a season at Pontins in Blackpool. <laughs> it's, it's not quite the same, Rogan. <laughs> well, um, Blackpool can be pretty dodgy. It can be dodgy, <laughs> exactly. Um, Rogan, you did a stint as a gardener and a painter and decorator to pay the bills. I was also um, uh, a tram conductor in Blackpool, now you mentioned it. Oh, bloody yeah. hell. On the, the open-top trams. <laughs> And it was fantastic. We got those wind tickets, you know, where the, the paper ticket just comes out and out and out. Yeah. And, you know, there'd be groups of 15 people that are churning out the tickets. It was like, it was like confetti. It was really, really a nice job. Yeah. But you were, we unearthed a little bit of intelligence from your family members um, that you were once doing a painting and decorating job at Foxy's Biscuits. And an entire wall of your house was stacked high with foxes, boxes of biscuits that the girls used to go and barter with at school. Is that a lie or is that true? Uh, well, I mean, to be absolutely honest, I'd completely forgotten about it. But then when you <laughs> mentioned the foxes' biscuits, I do have a memory of a sort of one room of the house being more or less full of them. Um, and, uh, and the kids, of course, getting stuck in. Um, but you know, Dan. So, so moving on from there, um, you were named Guardian Graduate Journalist of the Year in 1982. So obviously, you had the travel adventures, but then, you know, that's a pretty significant, you know, accolade. So tell us a little bit about those years and your early years in terms of you know more of the career side and what did you set out to be? Well, it was actually 1980, uh, not 1982. And I'd gone to uh, Lancaster University uh, in 1977 to do a degree in, in, in psychology and religion. There was a great department up there um, that uh, were interested in that stuff. And I was now interested in that stuff. I was interested in the psychoanalysts and, you know, all religions. I'd seen so many of them in action. I was, I was interested in everything. And... Um, uh, uh, and I was graduating in 1980 uh, with my first degree. I went on to do a PhD. Um, but it was, I'd been reading a lot of the Siberian material um, uh, because I'd become interested in shamanistic performance. They had uh, popular entertainment in a, in, a, in a bubbling cauldron, everything, you know, whatever it might be. It's all in the, the shaman show. And I'd come across uh, this stuff about the use of the fly garret mushroom, the shamans in particular, and that the reindeer too were extremely fond of eating um, the fly garret mushroom. And uh, both the people and the reindeers used to get pretty off their cake. Um, and, um, and it had a, a rather strange um, feature to it, this drug use, that if you drank the urine of someone who was high, then you'd get high. And so it was a very efficient way because, you know, I mean, mushrooms are hard to find. <laughs> so it was a very efficient way of getting everybody off. And I was thinking, well, hang on, Father Christmas is very merry. He's got a coat on that looks like a fly garret mushroom. It's, it's, it's red and white stuff. He's got reindeer who are also off their hands. They can fly too. And he brings gifts, which are fundamentally the gifts of culture. And so I've been talking about this as well. And he said, you know, you should, um, you should uh, give the Sunday Times a ring. And so I called the editor. And, and she said to me, um, um, you know, that's not really good. So my first effort of journalism was 
the front cover of the 1980 Christmas edition of the Colour magazine. And it ran wow. the headline, the headline on the front, with the headline said, Santa takes a trip. <laughs> so it was that that won me the annual Guardian Graduate Award. But, um, you know, which is up on my wall behind me as we speak. Um, but also, it gave me a tremendous confidence that I might be able to make a living as a writer and a broadcaster. And that was the first time that that really um, occurred to me. Well, that's uh, going from reindeer urine to football as quite a good little link there. So you launched the first and only MBA in football, football business at the Liverpool University and pioneered the first ever postgraduate football degree. Uh, I actually remember at the time, my team, my designers actually designed the logo for your course. Do you remember that? I do indeed. Very grateful too. I don't think you've charged. I was right at the very beginning. It was like, I've got this course. It's going to be amazing, but we need an identity. And I remember putting one of my designers on it. It was a Scouser and a Liverpool fan. And he just, he'd lap that up. He loved that job. But tell us about setting up a, a business course, MBA course at Liverpool. That's quite quite a leap. It is indeed. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it, in a way? I mean, now we're... We're in 1997, been a lot happening in between me returning from India and, and going to university and stuff. Um, and so uh, the MBA just came out of nowhere. I mean, I was fairly well known in the city at the time in Liverpool, and it was some kind of Liverpool council do, because I remember the Lord Mayor was there. And um, uh, it was on the roof of a building as well. It was a lovely day. And... And it turned out that I was having a chat with him and the guy who was with it, who turned out to be the Chancellor of Liverpool University. Um, and I said, you know, why doesn't the University of Liverpool have anything? You know, why, why isn't it studying football? Because it's one of the most important things in the city, both economically and quite clearly culturally. Two great football teams and a whole bunch of others. Tens of thousands of us playing football in one kind of team or another every weekend. Um, and yet, neither of the two universities, there were only two in those days, neither of the two universities, you know, I'm talking about the way the game works, the economic impact of businesses which depend on it, it's been, which we see so clearly now in the COVID lockdown. But, you know, what makes a football club work is a whole bunch of stuff. And it seemed to me uh, to be a good idea to, to train people to work in this business. I mean, I'm talking about 1977, uh, 1997. Well, you know, the first Sky deal was like 16 million quid and everyone went, wow, that was for, you know, Four years of the second one, the 97 deal was it had gone up to like 70 million quid, and everyone was going, bah! little did we know it would end up, you know, 3.5 billion each year, each time it was renegotiated. It just left and left. And so you could see that this was a massively expanding business. And wouldn't it be a good idea if the university? with the name of one of the football clubs written on it, actually have something, you know, to do, to teach, to unfold about, you know, how it works. And I said, you know, I know a lot of people now who work in this stuff. And, um, you know, people like David Dean. And I said, you know, they would just come up and teach for nothing because they, you know, David would do it for nothing because he loves it. And, uh, and you know, and through him, through David Dean, you get to everybody in the Premier League. Through Rick Parry, who was by then also a, a good friend of mine, you get to everybody in his world. I can bring people to talk about the work they do and how they found themselves 
in the work of football. And I think people will pay to come and get an MBA in football industry. Now, the University of Liverpool didn't have an MBA in anything. It didn't even have a business school when I was having this conversation with the Chancellor. And so the football MBA, as it emerged, simultaneously launched the business school, which is now a huge, very well-respected and, 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 you know, wonderful school of, of, of academia. And the football industry uh, group is, uh, is one of its, uh, one of its, you know, it, 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 its population. So, um, you know, talk about stuff, well, you all know this probably, how a conversation can lead to such profound changes in your life because now suddenly I'm an academic, as it were. I mean, I'm not really, I never have been very much of one. But, you know, I've done the things that I can do this. And so I did it. And that has been one of the joys of my life. That, you know, people coming from, you can imagine the commitment of people coming on that programme. You know, let's say you're a sort of small-time lawyer, 25 years old, in Sao Paulo in Brazil. You're football crazy. You're bored to bloody tears with the job that you've got. And he may say, um, listen, have you heard about the football MBA in Liverpool University? And then you have a look at that, and that might be now, you know, that's, that was a 100,000 quid decision because he gives up his job for a year. You know, that's 20 or 30 grand. He, you know, travels across. He rents somewhere to live. He pays the fee to do the MBA. And he wants to go to the match in Alpha Pines. Why not? You're in Liverpool. It's a, you know, and so I admired so many of the students who made that kind of commitment that I wanted to make it the best it could possibly be, not as an academic exercise, but as a vehicle to get you into the business you think you want to be in, which is football. And that was what I wanted. And, you know, here we are 20 years later or whatever it is. There were about 800 graduates working in football or sports-related jobs all over the world um, and um, and of course some of them um, have become extraordinarily uh, successful and, and and you and I know know one of them don't we <laughs> that's how we met actually through that particular guy was Jimmy Worrell you're talking about indeed we won that brief and my client was Jimmy who was one of your first students, I think, wasn't he? And was he in the first year at the... The very first year. Yeah. So he was... His boss at the FA was a lady called Hazel Rusco. And when he was putting this job out to tender, Hazel said, oh, make sure Phil's on the pitch list, because apart from being across the road in Soho Square, we'd already created uh, identities for the FA. So Jimmy and I became mates... And when that job was finished, he and I came to Liverpool University and presented it to all your students. Bloody hell. That must have been in year two. It was, uh, you know, uh, it, it was fantastic um, to see people flourish through something that you'd helped to bring about. And it wasn't just me. It was me and it was Rory Miller, without whom it would have been impossible. Uh, he was an Everton, uh, he was an Arsenal fan who worked in the, um, in the Economic and Social History Department, and we had a room in the cellar of the Economic and Social History Department, and he helped me negotiate the academic way of doing this, the way that this idea, which was obviously a good one, that the shape it needed to be to work, to sell it to the powers inside the university. I mean, the vice chancellor was up for it, but of course there were many, many other senior professors and, and people in. So I had to go through a sort of process of making sure that they were happy 
and and you know they, I think they were a bit outraged actually with me that they thought it was a bit of a, a chancer um, because uh, I, I had a big meeting with all of those and just for a laugh I'd packed seven or eight um, brown envelopes with make believe money in them because of course bribery and corruption in football at the time is also, you know, was, was quite common and revealed, you know, of managers in the old days when the managers were in control of all that stuff. And before the meeting started, I gave them their, their brown envelopes. <laughs> so I want the job, you know, here's a little sweetener. And, you know, and they look mystified and I said, this is the way football's worked in the past. Are you enjoying our podcast? Remember to subscribe, share and leave us a review. Are you a founder member and leader of the first national fans organisation in the UK? And you led them through some awful moments such as Hazel and Hillsborough disasters. And you also founded Share Liverpool FC, which was backing the fans to take control of Liverpool Football Club. Can you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in these big fan-based initiatives? Because at the time, you were headline news for quite a while, weren't you? Yeah, yes, indeed. I mean, it was it was the Heysel Stadium disaster which which drew me actively into football. Of course, as, as you realise, I've been a football fan all my life. Um, but it was the horror of what happened there. You know, 33 was it dead Italians, um, local fans um, behaving badly, um, uh, crowds panicking and um, trying to get away and a crush. And it wasn't just what happened in the stadium. The stadium was falling down. It was the bit, you know, this was a match between two of the biggest football clubs in Europe, Juventus and Liverpool. Every Saturday, every weekend, the combined audience of those two clubs would be 140,000 fans. And we were stuck in a falling-down stadium in Belgium, which got 33,000 seats in it. You know, I mean, this is the kind of decisions that the UEFA of that day took. It was Buggins' turn. It was this, that, the other. It was a favour to, you know. But we ended up in a crap stadium. People behaved in a crap way. The police were absolutely crap. The entire thing was a disaster. And the lives of people, of course, many people were lost and many, many more, more terribly affected by it. And the following day, I called some of my fellow copyrights, really, um, said, you know, could we get together um, uh, uh, and have a talk about this? Because it seems to me that you need to respond to this, that we are Liverpool fans. What can we do to maybe make this better? And when we look at the entire fuck-up that it was, how can we organise to put pressure on the authorities who have the responsibility for running these games to do it right by us? We need a supporter organisation. We need, you know, a supporter organisation. I mean, there have been, you know, the, 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 the kind of bingo and tango kind of supporters clubs, most of them run by football clubs rather than the supporters, but, you know, they would, uh, and, and of course the, uh, the, the federation, the, the, the National Federation of Supporters have been around since, you know, the 30s or so, but they didn't really have too aggressive an edge, whereas we were Liverpool people and we were home. We were Liverpool City and Liverpool City was shit. Look at what those people did. You know, the city was in its absolute nadir. And I, you know, gathered to say three or four or five people down, one of whom was Pete Garrett, wonderful guy, and, 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 and a copper. Uh, Pete, he sometimes came to the match in his uniform. And he was, and Pete was used to organising in a way that I wasn't. 
and other talented members, I won't go through them now, but I ended up conversing. The, I started writing a piece, and instead of sending it to a newspaper, I thought, I'll send it as a letter to the editor of a good newspaper. And I thought, well, I'll do it to The Guardian. So I sent a letter to the editor of The Guardian, which was essentially, it was a very long letter, it was an 800 word letter. But they published it on the Thursday. On the Thursday night, we got a call from BBC Newsnight to say they were devoting the whole of Friday night to what the shit happens to the English football now. And could we send a couple of our members? <laughs> we only had six members. But two of them, Pete Garris and, uh, and uh, who's it? Uh, my memory's terrible now. Uh, anyway, a couple of us went down. I didn't want to go because I didn't want to be on the tire and I didn't want to do it. And, um, and they did a great job. And over the next three or four weeks, an immense amount of... Oh, I put Pete Garrett's postal address, of course, with his permission, at the bottom of the letter to the editor, because you could do that. And over the next month or so, we got about, you know, 15,000 poor Pete. The po Pete's postman was not amused. He ended up delivering it by van load and, uh, you know, carrying some coal bags full of letters and um, with uh, and some of them even had a fiver in or a tenner saying you're going to need a few bob to do this you know amazing it was tremendous and it was that that gave me um and everyone else the energy to get on and do it and so you know i started with heisel and i I ended as, as chairman of the Football Support Association because it is the football support, the national football fans organisation today. And great guys and gals running it too. And I've got full of admiration for them. But, you know, I had to put it down. After Hillsborough, I was, you know, and the media storm after that, and, you know, that's when I was on every TV channel. You know, you know I was on five times a day, and I'd end up at 11 o'clock on a, on a grassy wall in somewhere in, you know, the north end of Liverpool, you know, getting Channel 4, um, and, you know, scouse kids sitting around on their haunches looking at what the hell is going on here, and I'm sitting on a chair spouting away. And I think my day had started at 6.30 on Radio 4, and it would, I'd, and it finished at, you know, 11 o'clock. I'd, I'd been flown between Liverpool and London to do all the stuff and back and everything. It was just, and that was the point where I went, you know what? I'm getting off the bus. It's in good hands. I've, you know, I've had a go. Um, uh, the Hillsborough Inquiry, of course, you know, months and months and months, and of course, uh, the uh, Lord Justice Taylor, and uh, you know, we got to the right result, um, which was then vehemently denied regardlessly by some of the police. Um, but you know, I that's when I stopped and thought, what do I want to do? I think I want to be a writer and a broadcaster. Prior to you doing this. There were no fans organisations in the UK. No, that's right. Uh, you know, it just, uh, I mean, supporters clubs existed, but they were invented by the clubs and, you know, sold to the supporters. It was just, you know, it was bingo and tango. And, um, you know, it, it, wasn't in, it wasn't independent fans representing themselves um, to, uh, to, you know, the powers in football, the club, and the, the league, and, and so on. And then in, um, what, by uh, 1989, um, and Hillsborough, and post-Hillsborough, um, uh, I was absolutely exhausted, really, and I stepped down from chairmanship of the Football Supporters Association, had this wonderful moment sitting in the garden, thinking about what would you like to do next. So actually those those were amazing things that were going on around that time. Yes. Um, but 
This week has seen some momentous decisions made by some of the world's richest clubs to carve out more money for a Super League. And it's the fans' reaction that has actually meant that this whole thing has fallen through within the space of the last few days. So can you give us your perspective on that, please? Well, of course, the fans have had an impact. But actually, it's comparatively small, I think, compared to the other powers involved in here. In certain places, and Liverpool is one of them, Manchester is another, the, the supporters' organisations are incredibly well organised. And they're used to dealing with the media, they're used to living in the world that we live in now. Um, and of course, um, I think in the case of a city like my own, Liverpool, it would have been tremendously difficult for them to do something like this. Um, in fact, it was a bit frightening, really, when you think that they thought they could do something like this. But the powers involved in terms of UEFA and FIFA and the European Union, <laughs> really heavyweight shit that was coming in and saying, this is absolutely not on. You know, you won't have a stadium to play in. You won't have a local government that, you know, will allow you to organise the game. Um, you know, Europe's your city, so go home and think again. And that's what happened. So, of course, the supporters are significant. But, I mean, and their voice was there. You know, the Football Supporters Association, wonderfully... Uh, led for the last, you know, 30 years after I uh, and, uh, and, and my crew had, uh, had stood down. Um, uh, they played a great role, as they almost always do. Um, but I think you have to recognise that if that was all it was, it may not have been enough. In some cities, it would have been extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily difficult to do it. Yeah. In others, maybe not so. But it's great to see that there's a result. But I don't think it's gone away. You know, when you think of the people who actually own these clubs and how they work and how they make their money and the scale of their financial power, it's rampant capitalism. They're designed to move towards maximising the value of what they hold. And, um, you know, unfortunately that doesn't work in football <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's, it's a game that, I mean, the money comes from many different sources now. And it's true, the audience for the Premier League and similar leagues in, in Europe. Um, uh, is, in terms of numbers, you know, it is huge Asian interest, particularly in the Premier League, which is one of the reasons, of course, why the television values are so high. And, um, you know, I'm sure that, uh, that those people who are thinking about doing this were thinking, um, this is the old world. We should be focused on the new. We should be designing a sexy flashbang competition with all the pretty boys in it that these kids in China and India and so on love. Because that's where the market is. That's where the numbers are. That's where the money's going to be. Because they're rampant capitalists. Yeah. Well, your and, team and my team, and they're, they're uh, both owned by Americans. And they're not this whole idea of not being relegated and just having a permanent position I mean, just doesn't why really... have a stupid risk like relegation. They're not messes with business. Yeah. So you know they don't see it like we do. They don't no. understand that you know every word for football fact describes a condition that no sane person would volunteer for. Because it's awful being a football fact. Most of the time <laughs> goes wrong. All the bloody time it seems. <laughs> it's constant pain and suffering. You're always worried. You're 2-0 up with 10 minutes to go and you just know that 
You know, if that centre half just misses something and then they'll run up and there's eight minutes to go and everybody starts, you know, you just, it's, it's, it's an edge of the seat experience. And as the very words for football fan illustrate, you know, I mean, fanatic. I mean, that's yeah. the most fun English word you could find in 1885 when, you know, Britain ruled the world and a third of it was red. <laughs> you know, fanatic was so un-English. And that's what we called ourselves to say, we're not like you. This is, you know, this is a total investment. We are fans. And of course, you know, the other names for fans, Torcedor, that, you know, I mean, you know, Torcedor, the, the, the Brazilian word for fans is, you know, a word for, you know, getting, I mean, the literal translation is the mangled ones, the mangled ones. That's what we call ourselves, because not only do we suffer the pain of constant loss, but we're likely to die in the stadium. Brilliant. One name I want to mention, Rogan, is slightly not, you know, not necessarily linked, but tell me an intriguing story. Please tell us about the time you were hanging out with none other than Pele. And is it true that he asked you to go out and speak to the press and speak on his behalf? Not quite. Um, it, it's not far off. Um, I'll, I'll give you the context. Um, I mean, I got to know and indeed love Pele in Brazil. And he became a minister of sport in 1995 when I was a freelancer. And he invited me to go over to give a talk about fans at a big conference he was organising as minister of sport. Well, I went down really well in Sao Paulo, and Pele and the audience really loved my my you know my enthusiastic presentation. And it began a relationship which you know with the great man which lasted for years. And I kept on going over there. I got work over there. Um, you know, I did, uh, did, you know, I spent quite a bit of time. So by the time of this story, which is the World Cup in South Korea in 2002, I'd known Pelly for a long time and I knew he was around. And I was traveling with a Chinese journal called Wenya and her newspaper wanted her to get an interview with the great man. So I said, well, I'll, I'll, see what, I'll see what I can do, because if I can get to it, I can do it. She said she needed a photo of herself with him to validate the piece. Otherwise, the newspaper wouldn't believe she'd met it. So I said, OK, fine. So I found out which hotel Pally was in, and I took her up to the suite where Pally was inundated with journals and hangers on and bounces at the door. And of course, Pelly was sponsored by somebody I can't remember now. So, you know, he was controlled, access to him was controlled by the people who were paying him for the privilege of being there. So it was absolutely crazy. And I had to basically wait outside with Wenya for when the door opened and Pelly could see me. And that happened after a while. He saw me, he said, no, 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 he come in. So he waved me in, so that the bounces parted, you know, the waves, and I was in. And when could get her, um, her, her picture. And then she said she wanted to interview him, but I said, listen, it's plainly impossible. These people will not. And Pele said to her, Rogan knows all my answers. Just interview him. Have me. No problem. So... We retreated, Wenya and I, to the bonsai garden of this beautiful hotel. And so, <laughs> Jan Wenya wrote her entire piece, her entire interview with Ballet. <laughs> Brilliant. Stays out of it. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful, wonderful story, really. Brilliant. My next question, um, I invited you to do a talk at my agency many, many, many years ago. And it was a one-hour talk on the life of Ferenc Puskas. And there was a lot of people in the room who weren't alive when he was playing. But for some reason, there was a hundred or so people in that audience in the agency. It was quite incredible. You went on to also write his 
his um, autobiography, didn't you? Yeah, Pushkar Jean Pushkar. Why is he the best player in the world, in your opinion? Or why was he? But give you a little bit of background on on, on Pushkar for me. Uh, you know, I mean, I was born in 1945. By 1953, in the coronation, my mum got a tally. In November 1953, England, unbeaten by continental opposition since 1066, were playing Hungary at Wembley. And we watched the Hungarians dismember England. 6-3. Took them back to Budapest. 7-1. Wonderful. Man. It was the beginning of the football that you know Pep Guardiola plays. This is the beginning of that line of development which subsequently went to Ajax. And, you know, and it, the, the, these lights, these lights go off in clubs, you know, as the, the baton gets carried forward of this fluid way of playing the game, of occupying space, and of, 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 of beating people with space. That's where this game comes from. And so I've been in love with Pushkar since I was eight years old. And it was a day, it was one of those days, I say, during the, the 1990s when I was in my back garden. I used to dream of jobs, basically. I'd sit, you know, with the sun flickering over my eyes in a chair, and I'd say, yeah, you know, what do you want to do? And I'd think, well, I'd like to go to the African nations. God, never done one. It's in Senegal all this year. That'd be nice to go down. Who would pay you to do that? That was always my second question, because I was self-employed. Like, who would pay you to do it? I said, well, you know, just uh, how about the Cole magazine? You got on the Cole magazine with Father Christmas. You know, you were <laughs> the editor of the Observer. And, um, and the word push-bash came out. <laughs> and, I then, you know, self-interrogated. I said, um, okay, Pushkas, what do you want? A signed shirt, would it? And the next thing came up, and this really was completely to my surprise. I said to myself, I want him to love me the way I love him. And so I thought, okay, in that case, it needs to be a big project so that you're working together for maybe a year or more. He sees how much you love him, and he will love you back. Okie dokie, let's get over to Budapest. And it was just at the time, it was 1990 or 1991, actually, when um, a pushback, who, of course, had fled um, after, after the communist uprising, well, refused to go back. They were actually in the, in the first European Cup uh, competition. They were away um, playing in Spain, I think, or Portugal. And um, uh, Pushkash and, the, and the, 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 the team, uh, the Golden Squad, as they were known, um, uh, paused on the border in Austria, deciding whether to go back or not. Some did, some didn't. And Pushkash didn't. He went back to Spain, where, of course, he'd been living for years. You know, bought a sausage factory, appropriately. He loved them, and he was increasingly beginning to look like one. <laughs> and he lived in Spain, had his children there. And now he finally returned to Budapest. And as I flew in to meet Clara uh, Yomri, the, uh, the uh, BBC World Service Hungarian, Representative for the BBC World Service in Budapest, who met me at the airport. We drove in um, uh, to the hotel, and she said, Oh, by the way, Bush Besher's back. He flew in yesterday. He's at the hotel 200 yards down the road. <laughs> so I've only just arrived in Hungary and, you know, throwing the stuff out of my bag, washing my face, and said, Let's go see the fat man. And so it was down the road. Pushkesh was there, saw me wonderfully friendly, and then, you know, I mean, I spent years, literally years, 
uh, with him, particularly when it came to, to, to writing the book. I mean, it was just so wonderful. Brilliant. We end up, you know, a limousine to Queen Elizabeth Hall. And all the kids outside, because of course all the great stars of the day were arriving, and the kids all looked blankly, but then the parents suddenly rushed forward, grabbed their kids, autographed things. <laughs> and you know, it took us 20 minutes to get him in. In fact, we had to get the we had to get the uniforms out to get him in through this panel. And then we went through the whole show and everything. And at the end, there was an after party, of course. And, everybody wanted to speak to him. I could see he was getting pretty tired. And uh, I said, it's time to go. I'll, I'll get the car to pick us up. But I'll get a side door because there's still thousands of kids outside. So we were wandering down the long, you know, back backstage corridors to get to a side door where, where the car would be. And he got about 20 or 30 feet ahead of me. And he was about to round a bend and lose sight of me. And he turned and looked back and the uh, the guy leading said, just round the corner here, Mr. Pushka. And he said, no, 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 I wish for my friend Rogan. And I thought, he loves me. He fucking loves me. Oh. <laughs> that was the moment. That was a dream in your garden. Well, can I bring you to um, your family? Because you've got three amazing daughters. Charlie, Faith, and Molly. And you and Mrs. Taylor have become grandparents quite recently. Um, just tell us a little bit about your multi-talented family, because I know the girls. Well, yes, I mean, Sue was and is a great mother and was an inspired junior school teacher by profession. And the three girls we raised are her greatest achievement and mine too. We're so full of love for them. We so admire the way they chose to make their professional lives involved with the things that they love, just like Sue and I had. I think they learned that from us both. Do what you love. Don't get over-concerned about making money or blah, blah. Happiness and satisfaction is much, much more valuable. And, you know, when you think that, you know, Charlie was always music crazy, what does she do? Well, she works at the Liverpool Philharmonic. You know, Molly, you know, she was just movie crazy. She was just uh, actor crazy, writer crazy. She wanted to write short stories and, you know, and, and tell them. And, and, and uh, you know, and she writes plays and produces them. And Faith, who was always movie mad, spent most of her early years sitting a foot away from the television watching old movies. Um, you know, what's she doing? She, you know, she's working for, um, for uh, you know, one of the biggest distribution outfits going, you know, in the UK. Um, and they found their way to that place, which you loved anyway. So you're getting paid to be there. That's just perfect, really, isn't it? One of the couple of questions we ask, Rogan, as we end the, this sort of podcast, you know, we've been in a tough year, obviously. That, you know, we don't want to talk too much about that. But what's the last thing that you saw that you thought, that's wonderful? Oh, uh, a couple of days ago. There is a, a fountain of water in wonderful Sutton Park, beautiful five square miles of park, which I've been fortunate to live next to where I've been in Liverpool most of my life. And uh, there's a fountain of water there just by the cafe in the centre. And um, there was a strong westerly wind and it turned the fountain into a rainbow as it blew the, the, the fountain into much finer droplets. And the kids who were passing were just absolutely stunned at this gorgeous rainbow in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the lake you know fabulous lovely brilliant brilliant and and final question just um as an agency we're all about trying to take complex things and make them wonderfully simple and uh, <laughs> so what would one of life's complexities be that you'd like to see made simpler to be honest i would like any of life's complexities made any simpler 
the, it's the complexity of life that keeps us sharp, provides us with so many surprises and novelties. Some surprises aren't pleasant or simple, admittedly, but life without the element of surprise would be excruciatingly boring, I think. So and many of us have discovered that over this last year, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah, amazing. There we go. Yeah. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, much appreciate, Rogan. You get your fishing gear on now and get back on that lake. <laughs> thank Good you, enough, mate. Almost enough words. Thank you for tuning in to the Wonderful People podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Wonderful Creative Agency. Find out more at thewonderful.co.uk.